Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at the outbreak of conflict in Ethiopia. My guests are David Pilling, the FT's Africa editor, and Gabriel Nagatu, who's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington. So why has Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, resorted to war? Over the course of my lifetime, few countries have experienced such a dramatic transformation as Ethiopia. In the mid-1980s, the country suffered a devastating famine, which drew worldwide attention through a series of Live Aid concerts. There might be a bit of a cock-up, but if you're going to cock it up, you may as well do it with two billion people watching you. So let's cock it up together. At that time, few would have believed that, some 20 years later, Ethiopia would be one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. The country has the second-largest population in Africa after Nigeria, and its poverty rate halved between 2000 and 2015. The capital city, Addis Ababa, has become one of the major commercial hubs of Africa. But while the Ethiopian government got a lot of praise for its economic record, It was also often authoritarian and accused of human rights abuses, including the torture and imprisonment of political opponents. That began to change in 2018 with the rise of a new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed. Abiy made peace with Eritrea, released many political prisoners and journalists from jail, and he relaxed censorship. In 2019, the Ethiopian leader was rewarded with the Nobel Peace Prize. In his acceptance speech, Abby spoke movingly of the horrors of war. Those who have never seen war, but glorify and romanticize it. They have not seen the fear. They have not seen the fatigue. They have not seen the destruction or heartbreak, nor have they felt the mournful impetus of war after the carnage. But less than a year later, Ethiopia is at war. Prime Minister Abby has launched an assault on the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. The fighting's been fierce. There are many refugees and reports of possible war crimes, perhaps committed by the TPLF. The UN High Commission for Refugees is deeply concerned. While the details of the alleged mass killings reported by Amnesty International in Maikadra and southwest Tigray have not yet been fully verified, uh, the High Commissioner is calling for a full inquiry if confirmed as having been deliberately carried out by a party to the current fighting, these killings of civilians would, of course, amount to war crimes. As we'll hear, opinions are divided about the wisdom and morality of Abiy Ahmed's decision to go to war. Gabriel Nagatu thinks the Ethiopian Prime Minister had little option, but David Pilling started our discussion by suggesting that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee 
may now consider that it gave Abiy Ahmed the prize a little prematurely. If you remember, Abiy came out with a real bang and there was huge excitement about what he'd done. He let out tens of thousands of political prisoners. He invited back parties and exiles that had been banned under the previous regime. Crucially, he made peace with Eritrea. And so you can see why there was this great hope for Abiy and why the Nobel Committee may have been tempted. But like Aung San Suu Kyi, who was obviously awarded the prize when she was in house arrest, and to some extent Obama, who had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize shortly after he became president, the award of the prize was partly sort of hope about what could be achieved, and it wasn't tested. If we look at two and a half years later, you know, the picture looks a lot more complex, a lot more difficult. And of course, we now have you know, what prima facie anyway, is the odd picture of a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize declaring military action against one region in Ethiopia. So my message in a sense was to the Nobel Committee, you know, these things are perhaps better awarded once the dust has settled and we can see how these things play out in reality rather than in expectation. Yeah, I mean, Gabriel, I guess to many in the West, to the last thing they they heard about Abby was that he got the Nobel Peace Prize. This will have come as a nasty surprise. But as somebody who follows the situation very closely, has this been coming for a while, this outbreak of war? Well, the actual outbreak of war was rather sudden. Uh, it was triggered by the uh, TPLF attacking a nighttime ambush on the uh, military base in the region. But the lead up to the conflict, the uh, TPLF for the past two years since Abiy came to power has consistently and methodically been working to undermine him by uh, supporting various uh, splinter groups across the country. There was a recent massacre in the Oromo region that saw three or four dozen uh, Amharas massacred in the schoolyard. Abiy in reaction, of course, had been in a standoff with them, but all along, I think Abiy's strategy was to wait this out. They have a deeper pocket. They could wait it out. Whereas Tigray, when the budgets were no longer coming to the TPLF, could no longer hold out indefinitely. Hence, they triggered the actual war by attacking this military base at midnight. And the entire country just went up in arms about what had happened. So... The actual trigger was somewhat of a surprise, but the build-up was predictable. And uh, it's not the case that he resorted to armed forces lightly. Mm. David, of course, Gabriel's referring there to the build-up of tensions between the TPLF and the Abbey government. What's the background to that argument between the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front and the government of Ethiopia? What are its roots? Well, the TPLF, in effect, ran the country or was certainly dominant within a four-party coalition that ran the country for 27 years. It had been instrumental in 1991 for overthrowing a Marxist dictatorship known as the Derg, which had been run by a man called Mengistu Hailemarian, and had then come into power as part of this four-party coalition. And they ran a very authoritarian, in some ways quite successful, but certainly authoritarian state for 27 years which kind of came to the end of its political shelf life in 2018 when Abiy was selected as prime minister, in a sense to put an end to a nationwide rebellion against this government that had been in power for so long. 
although Abby came in sounding like a real liberal, opening the jails, as I said, he also did push out many senior TPLF officials from the government, but crucially from the security services and from the military. And they, in a sense, retreated back to Tigray to lick their wounds. And so, as Gabriel says, you have had this kind of upping the ante when Abiy cancelled the elections, ostensibly due to COVID earlier this year. The TPLF went ahead and ran elections and won with this stumping majority. Then Abiy said that the government was illegitimate and so refused to hand over federal resources to the TPLF. The TPLF then said that Abiy was illegitimate and it didn't recognise him because he hadn't run the elections. So in a sense, we have seen this kind of bidding war. I think that it suddenly came to an all-out military conflict, to me certainly has been a surprise and shows, I think, a failure to negotiate, a failure to take the sting out of this as it was building up because what is being presented is a law and order exercise. But what it looks like is a full-fledged, if at the moment, a war that is confined to one region in Ethiopia, but still a war with planes and artillery and soldiers and tanks. Mm. I mean, Gabriel, we are now at this point, whether or not we needed to get here. Abby is making quite confident sounds, saying that you know he expects victory quite quickly. From what you can gather, do you think this conflict will drag on or do you expect it to be resolved fairly rapidly? My reading is this is coming to an end in the very near future. The latest is that they have now, within kilometers of Makali, the capital where the leadership is camped out and they try to circle the, uh, the town and uh, are asking civilians to find ways to get out so they don't become collateral damage. I think the sad part is the leadership that claims to be this heroic, battle-hardened uh, leaders are all camped in Makale, allegedly in churches and schools and so on. And the latest from the military spokesman was that they had destroyed two tanks of the federal forces and sent a rocket to Barda, the neighboring state. And at this 11th hour, if this is what is being put out to galvanize the army and, and the people, I think it's a very sad state of affairs. This is the moment to now come to terms with the inevitability of the outcome and to start negotiating a peaceful way out. Prime Minister Abi has given them 72 hours to surrender. And in the meantime, they're dropping leaflets on Makale advising civilians to stay away from military installations and, and so on and so forth. I mean, they have full control of the air and they're within striking distance. And at this point, you think sober minds would prevail and, and people will start saying, okay, you've made your point, you stood your ground, but now don't take down the whole town of 500,000 people or the whole region with you. Surrender or go out and fight. David, are you as confident as Gabriel sounds that this conflict could be over quite quickly if they fight it out? I guess the short answer to that question is no. I mean, I do not know. You know, I'm sat in London and there is an information blackout in Tigray. So information is hard to get and we can't necessarily believe 100% what either side is saying. Certainly what Gabriel is saying could be one outcome, and I think it's absolutely uncontestable that federal forces have taken a number of towns. 
They've taken Humera, they've taken Axum, which is the 2,000-year-old capital of a former empire that overlaps with Tigre and Eritrea. But we don't know, you know, the Tigrayans do have this long history of fighting. It's a very mountainous region. You may have what appears to be a surrender, but in fact, people retreating to the mountains and fighting a guerrilla war. Nor is it necessarily clear what support the TPLF have among the Tigrayan people. There are 5 million Tigrayans. If we believe the election results, which perhaps we should not, but if we believe the election results, then they are still very popular. So we don't know whether the Tigrayan people will feel as though they've been occupied. And when I was in Tigray, there was this feeling that the rest of Ethiopia was another country. I think it's important to realize that Ethiopia was never colonized. And in a sense, some people at least think of Ethiopia as a, as a sort of nation of nations, even as an empire. And there is this strong feeling of what one could call nationalism, not only in Tigray, but in Oromia and other parts of the country, the Somali region and many other parts of the country. And that's very evident in Tigray. I mean, Gabriel, I guess the criticism of the Abiy government's actions is that whatever has happened in the months running up to this, we've had a, a long period when the Tigrayan groups were dominant in the government, where there was peace and where the economy grew fairly strongly. And that appears to have been lost now. Yeah, let me just underscore one thing before I answer your question. It's important to underline that this is not a war against the people of Tigray. This is a conflict between the federal government and the TPLF, a party. There are other parties in Tigray, but Tigray is the cradle of civilization in Ethiopia. Tigray is as much Ethiopian as any other part of Ethiopia. This is not a war against the people of Tigray. But it is a conflict with, with the leadership of the TPLF, not even the whole party, but the leadership of the TPLF that has created what it has created. Couldn't one say that whatever they've done recently, the TPLF or the Tigrayan group were quite successful in government for 30 years? Well, listen, yes, they've built more roads and buildings and so on and so forth. And no one takes that away from them. But their biggest legacy in Ethiopia is that they have divided the country along ethnic lines to the point where ethnicity has now become not a source of pride and, and self-fulfillment and self-actualization, but a source of conflict. And I think a key lesson of this conflict, regardless of how and when it ends, is that this may begin the end of the ethnic federalism. Yes, Ethiopia will remain a highly federated state, but federalism not along ethnic lines. Let me give you a very good example. They came in and required everyone, when you started getting national IDs, you had to identify your ethnic identity. When many people said, no, I'm an Ethiopian, I've never, I'm half this, a quarter that, half this, they said, no, you have to choose one ethnic group. And 30 years later now, they are complaining that the government is looking at people's IDs and selecting Tigrians for attack. This is a chicken coming home to roost. Economically, has it progressed? Yes, the country has made tremendous strides economically. But the political price paid, the ethnic massacres that have taken place across every region except Tigray. They have controlled the apparatus of the, the military, the security sector, you know, I'll dare anyone to prove this wrong. So, 
Yes, economically, there was progress, albeit uneven, but more importantly, the legacy is the unleashing of this ethnic federalism that has now threatening to tear the rest of the country. But the telling story about all this is there's not a single other ethnic group that has risen up to say, Abi, stop this. This is not right. This is not fair. Every one of the ethnic groups have come out in support and said, if they have attacked the National Defense Force that was in Tigray, protecting them from any danger coming from Eritrea, they turn around and massacre them, then everyone said this is a justified uh, cause. David, but that obviously does raise the question. I mean, at the moment, the conflict is confined to one ethnic group. But you mentioned earlier the threat of the breakup of the country. If there is a rollback of ethnic federalism, obviously nobody can be sure how these things will play out. But do analysts outside Ethiopia, do they worry about the country breaking up in the long term? Well, there's sort of, in a sense, that constant fear with Ethiopia. As I say, it can be helpful to think of it as a kind of an empire whose borders have, you know, moved in and out like a concertina over history. And of course, um, Eritrea being lost fairly recently. But at the centre, I think, Gabriel's kind of hit the nail on the head. There is this deep division over what a federated Ethiopia should look like. And while he sees, and to some extent I have seen the 1995 constitution that he's talking about, the ethnically federal constitution that divided Ethiopia into nine ethnically defined regions so that politics in a sense was expressed through ethnicity. Now you could see that as letting this ethnic genie out of the bottle. The problem for Abiy is that Abiy, who wants to kind of centralize authority and have a pan-Ethiopian vision Ethiopians as Ethiopians first and their ethnic status as second or even as irrelevant. The problem is that that in many parts of the country, or at least to many people in the country, doesn't wash. And there is, unfortunately, a lot of opposition to that and people expressing themselves, whether it's in Oromia, where the central government faces another rebellion, in part even an armed rebellion, against what they see as an attempt to kind of centralize power. I mean, since Abiy's come to power, you've had another ethnic group, the Sidama, that have voted to declare themselves the 10th region in Ethiopia. And there are other ethnic groups that are now pushing for their own referendum so that they can also be declared different, more autonomous regions. So you have these centrifugal and centripetal forces pushing and pulling And while Abiy's vision of Ethiopia as a pan-Ethiopian, a nation state that can grow together, that can downplay ethnicity, is in a sense very attractive, certainly very attractive to outside ears, there are people within Ethiopia to whom that vision is anathema. And some of the people that were allies of Abiy and were very enthused by him are now in jail again because their vision and his vision just don't gel. Having said that, I must say Ethiopia has stayed together with this exception of Eritrea. So I think you'd be a brave person to predict that Ethiopia was going to break apart. And I think, you know, it makes sense in many ways for it to stay together. But you do have these forces pushing and pulling. Just a quick one, David, before I turn back to Gabriel. You mentioned Eritrea and the way Eritrea broke away from Ethiopia. But Abiy has not only made peace with Eritrea, he's also appears to be allied with them in this particular conflict. Is that the case? Well, that's right. You have to remember where Eritrea is. Many Eritreans speak Tigrinya, the same language as is spoken in Tigray. 
And to some extent, they're sort of one and the same people. That's too oversimplified, but there is some truth in that. So Eritrea has gone, in a sense, from Ethiopia's enemy, because although the war had stopped in 2000, they had not concluded a, a formal peace, to now, in a sense, an ally of the central government of Ethiopia, represented by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, that to the Tigrayans, or at least to the TPLF, is anathema, and they accuse Abiy of using a foreign power in a kind of pincer movement. Now, although there's no strong evidence that Eritrean troops have been in Tigray, there is quite a lot of evidence that Ethiopian troops have used Eritrea to retreat into and then to attack Tigray. So they've used the land. And again, you've got this slightly odd situation and you saw the Tigrayans uh, actually send some ballistic missiles uh, aiming at uh, the airport in uh, Smara, the, uh, the capital of Eritrea. So you've got this very complex and messy situation that could begin to kind of internationalize if it doesn't end quickly. And Gabriel, your background is as an economist. We alluded to earlier the uh, economic success of Ethiopia over the last 30 years. At some point, I gather, the fastest growing economy in the world. How concerned are you by the economic damage that a conflict like this can do? Of course, the war will have its impact on the economy, along with COVID and the recession, the global recession that's happening. And uh, Ethiopia will be no exception. And the debt overhang, which Ethiopia continues to struggle with, uh, will also contribute to uh, slowing down of the economy. It will. It will slow down uh, the economy. But my hope is that the conflict will cease shortly and uh, the, the work of reconstruction will begin and that will uh, see some counter-cyclical measures to uh, boost employment and other job-creating opportunities for people, particularly in Tigray, in the, in the war-affected regions, so that the economy can begin to revive the, the other danger is this happening precisely at the time when the uh, harvest was due to come in, so food security may become uh, an issue. So I might have uh, read the government is working with some of the UN bodies to uh, begin storing uh, food reserves in some of the liberated areas to help uh, both uh, jumpstart agriculture but sustain the population during the, the downturn. But I think Ethiopia will, will come out of this in reasonable shape. Okay. And last question then for David. Ethiopia is a big country. It's, it's over 100 million people. What are the dangers that this will spill over and uh, disturb the whole of East Africa? Is there likely to be international involvement to try to prevent that happening? Well, there certainly could be a knock-on impact. You're already seeing refugees pouring into Sudan. As I mentioned, there's the problems with Eritrea. You've had Ethiopia has been quite involved in Somalia and has pulled back some troops, has apparently disarmed its um, Tigrayan troops who are in Somalia. Some people are predicting, you know, that this is a kind of window for al-Shabaab, the Islamist group. I think I'd just like to go back, in a sense, to the economy, because I think this is crucial Abiy was already, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was already, in a sense, tinkering with the model that the TPLF under Mele Zanawi had put in place, which was a kind of state-led development model, explicitly really modelled on the likes of South Korea. And you'd had huge state involvement in building infrastructure, building this great grand renaissance dam, building health centres and so forth. 
and you saw state capital investment go up from very low single digits to about 20% of GDP, and that was sustained over many, many years. Now, Abby's idea, which has been welcomed by many, although it's risky, is to now bring in a kind of liberal capitalist element on top of that, because there was this idea that the private sector was being crowded out, that some aspects of the Ethiopian economy were backward because they were being run by the state, for example, the telecom sector and the banking industry and logistics. So the idea of Abbey was to bring in private sector capital and private sector expertise into things like the telecom sector. And there had been companies lining up to potentially put in billions of dollars. Now, I think the great fear is that if this is an unstable country, particularly if conflict continues, even at a low level, you may see foreign investors becoming more nervous about putting their money in Ethiopia. And so the kind of basis of this tweaking, this shift of the state-led development model to something that looks more kind of like a liberal capitalist model could in itself be endangered. And I think that is something that we should watch very closely. That was David Pilling in London, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. We also heard from Gabriel Nagatu in Washington. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. You'll be able to find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.